Welcome to Kingdom of the Logos, a Christian program of critical thinking and adventure. Tonight we have a special guest with us, Terry Young with the History of the Early Church. And Terry is joining us over the phone. But if I could, Terry, could you go ahead and introduce yourself and give a quick snapshot of what your podcast is and where people can find it? Sure. Uh, I'm Terry Young. I run the History of the Early Church podcast, which is a podcast uh, dedicated to telling a detailed narrative of the early church from Pentecost up to the Council of Chalcedon in the mid-5th century. Um, each episode is about 20 to 30 minutes with a, um, to have a certain degree of narrative coherence. As of right now, uh, we have covered We've gotten to the end of the third century in our narrative, and uh, the podcast is available at uh, both in the iTunes uh, podcast store and the Google Play store. And it is an absolute honor to have you here with us, Terry. And for those of you who are my listeners out there, I really encourage you to go out there and check out Terry's podcast. When I first discovered it, it's probably been about a year or two ago now, I was just absolutely blown away with the quality of the content. Um, he takes about a half hour and very coherently, very articulately goes into an extreme amount of detail, but it's not to the point where you can't consume it. Um, the average person can definitely sit down, turn on the podcast, and, and absorb the early church history, and it's just absolutely fantastic. But without any further hesitation, I want Terry to talk with us tonight about the early church accusations and sort of the, the role that the Roman culture had in the persecution, the idea that the early Christians, they were atheistic, it seems like a bit bizarre for us in the modern world. Again, a lot of times modern Christianity is, is framed in such a way that it's opposed to atheistic assumptions. But in the ancient world, the assumptions that people had were quite different. So why don't we start, Terry? Um, I want to ask you, Many people in the modern church are confused about the fact that early Christians were actually accused of being atheist. How is this even possible? And how did this relate to the broader Roman culture, especially with things like the Roman Pax Deorum? Yeah, the accusation of atheism is one of those things that sounds so counterintuitive to the modern ear. Um, and you're right, it, it stems ultimately from this idea of the Pax Deorum, which is really this central concept in um, the religion of, of the ancient Roman Empire. The belief that the, the reason for the success of the empire and the reason that the emperor was secure and the world was safe is because people were pious and virtuous and offered worship to the gods. And as a result, the gods were happy, and they blessed the empire in return. So if things were bad, if there was a famine, disaster, civil war, what have you, it was understood that the empire had lost the favor of the gods. And this isn't unique to Rome, um, of course, either. I mean, go back to um, the execution of Socrates in ancient Athens um, when he was um, executed for teaching unknown gods and inciting the wrath of the Olympians against the city. So for the, um, in the ancient Mediterranean, then atheism was basically uh, someone who was accused of being an atheist was someone who did not offer that worship to the immortal gods who protected uh, society in the world. And so Christians, of course, were um, 
by the very fact that they were, you know, uncompromising monotheists, um, were subject to this charge. And it was a pretty um, um, kind of, it was a bad word. You did not want to be accused of this. And um, other groups had been accused of atheism before, um, for instance, the, the uh, philosophical group, the Epicureans, uh, to the point that even being called an Epicurean, like atheist, was kind of a, a slur used in the time. Um, so it was because of this refusal for Christians to worship uh, the gods that protected the empire and the world, which was seen as basically a, you know, a threat to safety, that Christians, by spreading this message that told people to reject all other gods uh, and embrace only theirs, that they felt would uh, incur the wrath of uh, the gods upon society. Well, that really is quite fascinating because, again, in our modern context, people think atheistic, that means you're someone who doesn't believe in a higher power at all. But for the ancient Romans, it was actually something quite different. They seen it as a, a threat to society because the, the, the gods were not being pleased. That is very fascinating. The next thing I want us to talk about, Terry, is modern Christians are often unfamiliar with the power of martyrdom. And this was something, especially when you look at the early church, martyrdom plays a big role. But I wanted to ask you why it was that martyrdom was so influential in spreading the gospel. Moreover, it was so influential that many of the martyrdom accounts, they go from just being historical records to people, they take people like Polycarp and even others, and they, they really mythologize the martyrdom. You get a lot of things where there's, there's doves coming out of open wounds and things of that nature. With my congregation and the people that I, I pastor in my parish, there are a lot of people who they they look at the martyrs in the early church, and especially people who haven't spent a lot of time in church history, they say, well, why why would watching people be martyred, why would that bring you into the church? Why why was it that people would willingly go to the amphitheater? And of course the answer is, well, when when would choose faith over over giving giving in basically to the demands of Rome. But why is it, Terry, that martyrdom is so powerful in the early church? Well, martyrdom was a very public event seen by both, you know, Christians in the community and by pagans and Jews, um, you know, outside the church. And the, you know, at least the reliable reports we get of kind of the bravery and the courage of martyrs to endure uh, not just execution, but in some case, pretty awful forms of execution. The Romans could be incredibly creative in coming up with ways to kill people. And seeing this group of people who seemed, um, who were despised, but they acted with such bravery and virtue in the face of such hostility, captivated a lot of people. And that sort of living witness, because of course the word martyr means witness, that witness to the Christian life, to the gospel, um, really did um, uh, strike people quite um, quite dramatically. A good example is the uh, the Latin Church Father Tertullian, who uh, states that that uh, the martyrs were a major reason for his conversion to Christianity, and you can see that in his own writings, where martyrdom informs um, a, a very big part of his thinking, um, and especially more in the second century, um, less so in the third, but especially in the second century where Christianity was really on the margins of society and not much 
was well known beyond uh, kind of uh, common rumors and, and slander. It was one of the sort of few public ways Christians could really um, preach, if you will, in a certain way, uh, you know, nonverbal preaching, I guess, uh, to a large audience. Now, as far as uh, martyrdom accounts becoming uh, mythologized, this is an, this is unfortunately one of those regrettable um, uh, instant or sort of attrition to ancient literature and texts that we have in history because we do have, um, you know, we only have so many good, reliable historical martyrdom accounts. Um, a good amount that that does inform give us a lot of information, um, but a lot has been lost to later uh, embellishment or or just straight up fiction. Um, so, a kind of a textbook example is uh, a martyr by the name of Procopius of Scythopolis, who was a exorcist and a reader in the Church of Palestine, and uh, he is the first recorded Christian put to death under the great persecution of Diocletian in the province of Palestine. Well, flash forward to the Middle Ages, and Procopius has been transformed beyond all recognition from the humble lector and exorcist to um, one of the great military saints, um, mm -hmm. you know, like St. George or St. Demetrius, uh, bearing, you know, no sort of resemblance um, to, um, you know, to his historical person. And uh, some, you can see a similar process with uh, other martyrs, and I think um, I think the reasons for these vary. Some of it is just the fact that um, local churches that had commemorated martyrs in their liturgical calendars, uh, you know, marking the the date of their death um, in their church calendar, may or you know they may not have had or maintained um, the original trial records or what have you um, from back when the event happened and as, as, so as sort of a way to kind of boost the prestige of their local church you get these you know sort of pious fictions that get invented um, and just because uh, martyrdom also entailed a certain degree of kind of spiritual authority within the Christian community um, martyrdom for the early church was kind of the highest ideal and um, to the point that martyrs or confessors could even acquire this special charismatic authority. So one interesting example is during the persecution under the emperor Decius where um, many Christians lapsed and uh, offered sacrifice to the gods or offered incense and to receive um, – to have their sins declared forgiven, they they would go um, not uh, you know, to the local bishop or, or presbyters. They would go to the confessors because they'd leave the confessors interceding for them before God had this charismatic authority to um, uh, loose them of you know, their apostasy and, and return them in you know, good standing within the community. So it, it was very, very powerful both as an external witness to the uh, – Greco-Roman world, and also very powerful internally for the Christian community. Well, one of the things that really fascinates me is from, which again, I haven't had as, uh, any time to, I've been hoping to, to pursue further graduate education in the, the 
field of church history. But when I, just as someone who's in pastoral ministry and I study a lot of this stuff, in the early church, of course, there's a period of time before scripture is canonized and all that is is sorted out in sort of an official fixed form. But this the authority of the martyrs and really their accounts really seems to be something circulating throughout the church in a very powerful way. And for a lot of the the people I have in my, my life around me, and when you, you start to talk to them about these martyrs, they almost seem a little bit shocked that the, the martyrs would have such an amazing authority and when it comes to both spreading the gospel, and as you were pointing out, it's it's sort of preaching, not just by getting up on a on a in a hall and and speaking to other people just with words, but it's really something that's a bit more of a a visual, and just seeing these people live out their bravery. It's so fascinating to me. Well, the last thing I want us to talk about is Marcion. Um, here at Kingdom of the Logos, our program, we actually. We do a little bit of, of Christian comedy, and we try to help people to learn about uh, the history of the church. It's so rich and so full, but we've been talking a lot about Marcion lately. And he really is someone who's he's a fascinating individual um, in a really terrible way. Uh, you also see there's, you earlier you were hinting at, there's, there's all sorts of gray areas that happen in history. We don't always have the best accounts of things, and people fill in. There's, of course, the, the rumors about Marcion and things that went on earlier in his life. But could you give people an overview, some of the highlights of who this character Marcion is and what he does in the church that is really so corrupting? What was behind Marcion's heresies and why was he such a, a huge deal there in the early church? Sure. So uh, so Marcion was from the city of Sinope, which is uh, on the northern uh, central coast of modern-day Turkey. Uh, we're told that his uh, father was the local bishop there and that his family was uh, pretty wealthy because they were into shipping. He came to the Church of Rome uh, in the 140s, and uh, at some point it seems that he had contact with uh, not just mainstream Christians there but also uh, Gnostic Christians and uh, was exp- you know, kind of exposed to um, some of their ideas. And he basically posited a um, radical uh, doctrine of contradiction between the Old and New Testaments, uh, basically saying that the creator of the world and the God of Israel was not the father of Christ, um, which was, of course, an, an old Gnostic idea. But even sort of going further than that, that that God was uh, completely evil, that uh, the Old Testament and the whole religion of ancient Israel was an evil work of the Creator and uh, had nothing at all to do with um, Jesus was opposed to him and to his work. And um, to uh, argue this, he, he believed that the works of the New Testament, since the New Testament is so saturated with the um, with quotations and allusions um, and just the, the language and religion of the Old Testament, he thought that, well, that, that must mean that um, the authentic writings in the New Testament, or that we would call the New Testament, it's obviously that that's somewhat anachronistic, um, were interpolated by the Judaizers. And in particular for him, the only uh, authentic texts that he regarded as authoritative were uh, the Gospel of Luke 
and the letters of Paul. And he also heavily edited those to remove any content that spoke approvingly of the uh, Old Testament and the religion of, of ancient Israel. Well, this um, this was a pretty you know, extreme out there teaching. And uh, the story goes is that when he went before the um, church leaders in Rome, they were so horrified by this that not only did they kick him out of the church, but they gave back all the large sum of money that he had donated to the church over those years from his family wealth. Um, so from then on, he went on to kind of start his own rival church that actually I think lasted even into the fourth century. We still get reports then. There might be some reports of it beyond that. What is usually seen as the most significant aspect of Marcion is he is at least the first person we know for sure of to in effect, come up with a New Testament canon that by his act of selecting only Paul and the Gospel of Luke, um, and then, of course, editing those, he, it is thought, forced the issue uh, on the early church to really start delineating uh, what writings were authoritative and what weren't. And that uh, that wasn't unique to him. You know, the Gnostics had kind of forced the church to confront that as well because they had started writing all these um, gospels of their own under the names of different apostles. Um, I would say the more important long-term effect of Marcion beyond just the New Testament canon is that it entrenched the church's belief that the Old Testament is scripture. And that, you know, that had of course been the case before, but it that really in the second century was a defining marker of orthodoxy was your attitude towards the Old Testament. Is the God who created the world and gave the law to Moses and the Hebrews on Mount Sinai, is that God the Father of Christ? Um, and Marcion, along with the Gnostics, really um, made that absolutely central uh, for the early church. Well, that's just, he's such a fascinating I hate to almost uh, water down the the relevance of even saying saying that he's something to the effect of a supervillain in the early church, but it does appear that he actually did have quite a a wealthy background. And with him attempting to produce this edited version of the New Testament and sort of beat people to that that task, it just looking back at that, it's 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 remarkably seems like a clever way of, of trying to define orthodoxy before orthodoxy could be really established. Um, and I am very grateful that there were figures in the early church who were able to, to clearly draw lines and say, no, this is, this is bad, and, and get that out. But anyways, uh, thanks so much for coming on, Terry. Those are some, some excellent points. Again, those of you who are in our audience, I highly encourage you go and download his podcast, um, take it with you. It's something wonderful to turn on. I know when I have people over here cleaning the building, they we turn it on and people listen to the early church and a lot of people absorb it. It's very, very entertaining, very fun, and he does a great job with church history. Um, before we go, though, Terry, do you have any final thoughts about Marcy and the Pax Deum or martyrdom or anything else before we let you go? Um, I, mean, I, w- I would just say... Um... You know, this is just the tip of the iceberg. There are lots of fascinating things to learn about in the history of the early church. And, you know, I, I would just encourage people just dive in and just um, start digging into the 
the original sources and and reading up on some of the great um, you know uh, studies that have been done on this stuff. Absolutely, and we have this sort of modern myth that things that predate modern life that they're they're old and they can't possibly deal with the situations of of modern living. But it's it's such a, a horrible lie to tell people that because as we study the history of the early church, so many of the things that we deal with in modern life have very much been dealt with by by people who have come before us who have confessed Christ and had that transformation there. And it's it's it will make your life infinitely better to be studying church history. Well, anyways, we'll wrap things up again. Terry's with the history of the early church. And Terry, will you tell people again where they can find your podcast at? Yep. Uh, podcast history of the early church uh, can be found in the iTunes uh, podcast store or the uh, Google Play Store. Uh, the website, the blog site, you can find historyoftheearlychurch.wordpress.com. And then we also have a Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash early church podcast. All right. Thank you much. And on that, thank you we'll for having say, me. We'll say goodbye to our audience. Yeah.